Do you live in Chicago? Do you live in the Twin Cities of Minnesota? Do you live anywhere near those? Or do you just love to travel? Well, I love to travel because we're taking the Cracked Podcast to those cities. Our first ever live tour is this spring, Chicago Lincoln Hall, April 11th, and St. Paul, Minnesota at the Amsterdam Bar and Hall, April 12th. I am so excited to do those shows on the road. We're getting local guests, exciting guests, and more together. And you can get tickets right now. They are selling, but there's still some. And the links to get them are in our food notes for both Chicago, April 11th, and St. Paul, April 12th. I really hope you'll join us for our spring tour, first tour, and more. Maybe you'll see me in like my fun road outfits, right? Those are a total mystery. How how do I dress then? Am I like a bindle stiff kind of hobo? Or do I wear sports gear of the local town? I don't know why I'm wondering about this out loud. Anyway, come see us. Thank you. And on with the show. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of The Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam. I'm also known as Schmitty the Champ, and I am also, also a fan of history. Uh, You may know that if you see me on YouTube or Jeopardy or something else uh, uh, where I am either wearing hats or talking about it. But as we put this podcast episode together, and by the way, it is about the U.S. Supreme Court, As we put it together, my mind kept going to medieval European kings and queens, you know, absolute ruler, individual right to to run a whole country. And whenever you read histories of people like that, you see the the big design advantage in that kind of monarchy uh, because it's also the massive design flaw, which is that whenever a ruler has a problem, their whole country kind of suddenly has that problem too, right? If a king does not understand an intellectual concept, or if a king is bad with money, or if a king is like struggling with gout or or some other uh, disease of the past, usually suddenly the whole country struggles too. Then it doesn't understand that concept or spend money well, or I mean, the gout thing's more indirect, but you know what I mean. And that is no way to live, right? You want to live in a democracy where you can vote out a turkey leg waving bad king of a person. I always think of him on a throne with a turkey leg. And I love turkey legs. Don't get me wrong. Great food. But that idea of a a bad king like that, oh, what a terrible situation. But here's a question. What if the United States, across almost all of its history, has tended to have a passive and nine-person equivalent of that figurative turkey leg waiver. Sometimes great, sometimes not so great, but either way, invested with that kind of power over the country. And if that is true, isn't it weird that nobody talks about it? Well, here's our topic this week, why a terrible U.S. Supreme Court is the historical norm. Um, One more time, that is why a terrible U.S. Supreme Court is the historical norm. And my guest today is why I have really any sense of that at all. Ian Milheiser is the justice editor at Think Progress. He's also a lawyer, legal analyst, and he's the author of the book Injustices, the Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted. One more time, because that's a great title. Injustices, the Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted. That subtitle says it all. Across his book, he gets into the ways that the Supreme Court has not been all that consistent. Uh, You'd almost want them to just go one way that's at least predictable. 
But uh, here's a key quote from Ian's book describing them. Quote, the justices have routinely committed two complementary sins against the Constitution. They've embraced extra constitutional limits on the government's ability to protect the most vulnerable Americans while simultaneously refusing to enforce rights that are explicitly enshrined in the Constitution's text. End quote. And I had really a great time digging into this with him because, as we'll talk about, the Supreme Court has a pretty low reputation right now. I think there is something exciting about knowing that it has often deserved a low reputation because then also you notice the times when it really, really worked and really, really helped people out. Uh, In particular, the Earl Warren Court we'll talk about. Earl Warren was a chief justice of the court, and from the late 50s to early 70s, they had a really great run, uh, including decisions like Brown v. Board and other decisions holding that up. You may have heard of Brown v. Board in history class. That's one where they pushed for desegregation of America's schools, and they are desegregated today. Isn't that nice? But I think in history class, we tend to hear about those super positive decisions and then maybe some of the pre-Civil War cases that were particularly bad uh, toward, toward people of various races. And other than that, we don't really hear about how the Supreme Court has impacted business and health and our personal liberties as people. And we're going to get into all that today so you can see how it has worked over time and have more perspective on what's going on today. This episode will be very footnotes heavy because I think it's an easy episode to understand. Uh, it's, it's not like going to be difficult to hear or anything. It's just that we want you to have a lot of links to a lot of these cases. There's also a few fascinating ones that we will not get to, and you'll see them in the footnotes as something that the Supreme Court really did, like Buck v. Bell. Uh, steal yourself before you look at the case Buck v. Bell, just warning you. Uh, but those things really happened, and they're really fascinating to see because it gives you insight into how that part of the government works. You know, the top of one third of the government, the Supreme Court, pretty important, and I think it's worth talking about today. I also want to give you one heads up because I am thrilled that we got into this topic, the Supreme Court. Uh, The Supreme Court is very timely. It's news that is happening. As you'll probably hear in the show, there are even some announcements in terms of which cases the court will or will not take on that are a few hours away from when we taped this. We did it as late in the week as possible to keep it as timely as possible, but there could be some breaking news. And so we will discuss what could happen with those couple of things. And then in the text of the footnotes of this episode, uh, we'll let you know what did happen if there is uh, news to announce and report and so on. You you deserve a podcast uh, that is fully accurate about news if it means to be about news. And so that's what we're going to try to do with this particular show about something that's happening all the time. You know, those justices may look slow, but they can move. They make moves, and uh, we're going to move with them as absolute best we can. I hope you don't mind the text version of some of that as we need it. Also, I should say that's going to be a very, very small percentage of the episode uh, related to those super timely things. So the vast majority of it is uh, history (laughs) and is things that you don't even need to check the footnotes for in terms of what's going on. Enough setup from me. This is just, I think, a really, really fascinating look at how a key part of our government has pretty much always worked. And it's amazing to me that with all these Supreme Court justices, they are people that you did not directly vote for. Unless you are a United States senator, because they they confirm them. Do any senators listen to the show? I would love to know it. Please, if you if you are fully in the U.S. Senate, let's let's get to talking. Maybe bring you on. Could be fun. Either way, please sit back 
or ask your congressional aide, uh, Mr. Senator, if you voted to confirm that Kavanaugh fella, and if so, why the why the heck you did that? Not great. Either way, here's this scotusrific episode of the Cracked Podcast with Ian Milheiser. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. With anybody, especially in your world where it's so steeped in the legal profession and the courts, maybe this is a, a very basic question, but what got you interested in the law and in, and in justice? So I, I was a school teacher for a while. I, I taught at a very impoverished school in the Mississippi Delta, and I figured out pretty quickly that I wasn't going to be able to solve this problem 100 kids at a time. That, you know, I saw <laughs> rank poverty. I saw a system that didn't educate poor children, that didn't educate very many black children, and the school I taught in was still segregated. And I realized that I wasn't going to be able to solve that from the classroom. And so I wanted to be Thurgood Marshall when I grew up. You know, I went to to law school thinking I would litigate in front of the Supreme Court and, you know, try to solve these problems that way. And then halfway through law school, Justice Alito was confirmed and I realized that if I became a litigator, I would wind up losing cases for a living. Um, (laughs) So that's how I – wound up sliding into a career where, you know, I I can criticize the court and I can, you know, try to build public support for a better way of approaching the law without writing briefs for people who don't care what I have to say. I'm very fascinated when you said that the school in the Mississippi Delta was segregated. Is that is that sort of de facto segregation or actually on the books segregation? It's de facto segregation, but it is widespread in that. I mean, you might remember a while back when Senator Hyde Smith was running for re-election. There was this scandal over the fact that apparently she went to a white flight school and she sent her kids to a white flight school. And my reaction is someone who lived in that area and who taught in a very similar school district was, you know, like people in Mississippi are going to hear that. And a lot of them are probably going to say, well, of course she did that. She's white. The shocking thing about the town that I taught in is that almost all the white kids went to the private school. If you could afford to pay tuition, you paid tuition. And there were support networks that existed if you were a white person who couldn't afford to go there. So often the churches would would help them out. And so it was an entire social structure that was set up to make sure that, you know, at that point we were almost 50 years after Brown v. Board of Education to make sure that Brown v. Board of Education didn't actually do anything. That's incredible. And especially, um, Will, as we get into a lot of different cases here and current court things, I feel like most people don't know a lot about the Supreme Court or its decisions over history. But then if they do know a few cases, I feel like one of them would be Brown v. Board, that famous case that that said uh, segregated schools were unconstitutional. I guess certain parts of society and certain places in the country will just build something to work around even a decision that is that positive. In my book, I discuss at length how Brown was was not effective in um, desegregating our public schools. So what happened is in 1954, the Supreme Court hands down Brown. It was effective in some of the border states, states like Maryland, where you didn't have a really entrenched culture of segregation. But yeah. in the Deep South, and I mean, not just in the, what we now consider the Deep South, the states like Virginia as well, you had what was called massive resistance. You know, there was a Virginia school district that literally closed down its entire public school system 
And then they replaced the public school system with school vouchers. But the vouchers, you could only use them at a private school and all the private schools were only open to white people. So the the practical effect of that is we went from having a segregated school system in, in that district to only the white kids got to go to school until eventually the Supreme Court stepped in and said, no, you, you can't do that. Um, yeah. What actually overcame that massive resistance wasn't the Supreme Court. It was the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which did two things that are relevant here. One is that uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 said that the federal government itself was allowed to sue to try to desegregate a school district. And what that meant was that the NAACP no longer had to find a black plaintiff who was willing to put their name on a brief, which was a very frightening thing to do because if you were a plaintiff in a school segregation case, the, the Klan would come after you. Um, yeah. And so it meant that you could actually bring these lawsuits without fighting someone who was willing to risk their life in order to sue. And then the other thing that it did is it said that the federal government could cut off funding, could cut off federal funding to schools that remained segregated. And so it wasn't the Supreme Court that ended segregation. It was Congress when Congress in 1964 finally said, this is such a, a, a terrible problem that we need to do something about it. You mentioned the book and, and it has come up in the intro, but I, I would love to plug it again. It is Injustices, the Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted. One thing I did as I was reading it was I ended up just kind of creating a running list for myself of terrible Supreme Court decisions. Because <laughs> I, I And there's so like, many of them. How many can I rack up? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The thing you have to understand about the Supreme Court is who gets to be on the Supreme Court? Like in, in, in order to be qualified, you don't have to just be a lawyer. You have to be an elite lawyer. So like right. the only people who are eligible for those jobs are people who are disproportionately white, disproportionately wealthy. I mean, you know, it's possible to be a wealthy lawyer and, and have compassion for the poor, but you know, most people who get to, you know, who get to be elite lawyers have no experience of what it's like to be on the on, on the margins of society. And so what do you expect's going to happen? I I I mean, <laughs> 800 years ago, if you had a system of government where you took very wealthy people from the most elite rung of society. We call them barons and counts and dukes and viscounts. You know, now we call them justices. But it's the same people. Right. You know, it's the same echelon of society. Well, actually, sir, the, the Supreme Court justices have much less jewelry. So I think it's very different. Uh, I think they're wearing yeah. <laughs> a lot less bangles and crowns and stuff. I, I'd advise your listeners to to Google the phrase Canadian Supreme Court because our justices wear like boring black robes. In Canada, they literally wear red and white robes that make them look like Santa Claus. These poor judges have to sit up there dressed like they're about to come down your chimney. <laughs> Every episode has a set of footnotes, uh, so we'll, we will definitely link a picture of that because uh, I can't wait yeah, to no, see it. It's, it's well worth seeing. <laughs> and also you mentioned like uh, in terms of picking these justices, when you say that they have to be elite lawyers, is there any kind of actual job requirements for being on the Supreme Court? Like is there an age minimum or a law degree prereq or anything like that? Or do we simply traditionally pick 
um, right. advanced lawyers. So th- there's nothing in the Constitution say, listing any qualifications. You, you don't have you don't even have to be an American. Like you know, if Trump wanted really? to put Vladimir Putin on, uh, yeah, if, if Trump wanted to put Vladimir Putin on the Supreme Court, he could nominate him, and if the Senate would confirm him, we'd ha- we'd have Justice Putin. Now you know the reason why you typically only have elite lawyers on the Supreme Court is a very good reason, which is that. It's a tough job and it requires a great deal of very technical knowledge. It requires, you know, a mind that thinks about legal problems in a certain in a certain way. And so you need to have very savvy, very smart, legally trained individuals do that job. You know, the the, the problem is is that you know, very smart, very savvy, legally trained individuals also are in very high demand. They can make a great deal of money. You're typically drawing from a very elite group of people when you fill those seats. And so, you know, again, like there, there are, you know, Thurgood Marshall spent his career literally running away from lynch mobs so that he could defend black men who otherwise, you know, w- w- would have been hung on trumped up charges or, or you know, or otherwise executed on, on, on trumped up charges. You know, Justice yeah. Sotomayor famously d- did not grow up wealthy. So, you know, if you have a president who is determined to find someone who has managed to achieve those credentials despite not coming from a wealthy background, it can be done. But if you just, you know, randomly choose from among the people who are qualified to be Supreme Court justices and put nine of them on on the court, you're going to wind up with a group of people that look nothing like America as a whole. And as far as picking people today, I feel like if people know any news about the court, other than the particularly gross stuff we've had lately with Brett Kavanaugh, uh, in general, right. there's kind of a sense of a lot of vetting. Like anytime somebody comes up, there are a bunch of stories about how are we going to do hearings where we can decode their beliefs on these five important issues? How new is that process? Is that something we've kind of always had or are people just now starting to really dissect these folks? So, so the the hearing process is is fairly new, actually. I mean, it used to be. I mean, there there are instances of the president nominating someone and the Senate confirming them the next day. I, I think the first justice to get a full hearing was Louis Brandeis, and that was largely because Brandeis was Jewish, and there were a lot of anti Semites who were <laughs> you know throwing up throwing up roadblocks. Yeah. Um, so, like, so the hearing process is new, and and I frankly don't think it's very effective. I, I, I think the process we have winds up creating more uncertainty than it solves. We, you know, with Kavanaugh, set aside what he did to Christine Blasey Ford. Kavanaugh gave a speech where he said very clearly that he disagrees with Roe v. Wade. He couched it in the sort of language that you have to be familiar with legal doctrine to understand what he's saying. But he gave a speech where if you're a legally trained individual, you can read that speech and say, oh, yeah, he, he opposes Roe Ro v. Wade. You know, Kavanaugh was the scourge of the Obama administration's Environmental Protection Agency as a lower court judge, you know, on, on issue after issue after issue. You know, he went out of his way to say that you know, if, if, if you have a religious objection to birth control, your rights trump the rights of someone else who, who wants access to birth control. So you know, on issue after issue after issue, he had this very conservative record. And then we get into his hearing and he's like, oh, golly shucks, guys. Like I'm just going to keep <laughs> an open mind and, and you know, I don't want to answer that question because it might come before me. I, we, we learned a lot from the, the part involving the woman that he almost certainly tried to rape. 
But substantively, you know, I watched his testimony and I felt dumber at the end of it. As far as that, those hearings, it it does seem like it's a lot of theater of any nominee just saying they have an open mind on everything and, and that they will always view every case completely dispassionately. It seems like that never happens in practice, especially reading about all these cases in your book where there's just not a lot of consistency in how most of these courts have handled most cases. Are we almost better off just picking people out of a, not out of a hat, but that just sort of quick, ah, put them up. Uh, It's it's not a great idea to me, but maybe it's just as good. (laughs) As you can guess from the title of my book, the the Supreme Court for most of American history has been pretty bad. But- there have been periods when it has been decent. You know, there was a very brief period in the 1960s when it was actually good. The question I think that you need to ask with the court is who should have the power to decide things? I mean, if you read the Constitution, it is a shockingly vague document. You know, the Constitution says that no one shall be denied the privileges or immunities of citizenship. It doesn't tell you what the <coughs> privileges or immunities of citizenship are. So judges just have to guess. You know, it, it says yeah. that there should not be unreasonable searches and seizures. You know, what makes something unreasonable? It says we can't have cruel and unusual punishment. It says that you cannot be denied liberty without due process of law, you know, and then you got to figure out what liberty means. It's this, it's this very, very vague document. And so one choice we can make is that the Supreme Court can just decide what the word liberty means. And that means in 1905, they can say that the right to liberty is the right to have your boss make you work 100 hours a week in a sweltering basement with cockroaches crawling all over it. And that is your liberty right. And, you, you know, yeah. and then, you know, in 1973, the court said that liberty mean, you know, inc- includes the right to have an abortion. So we can we can do that. You know, we, we, we can say Say that we are just going to let the court breathe into these very vague terms, whatever you you know, whatever five justices say that they want them to mean. Then it matters a whole lot who sits on the court. The other thing you can do, and this is what the court said in the 1930s in a case called Caroline Products, is you could say, you know, the court is not elected. It is you know drawn as I have said from this very narrow band of society. And so we should be very cautious about when the court (laughs) intervenes. And so what what the court said in in this Caroline Products case is they said, look, if there's an enumerated right, if the Constitution explicitly says – like the Constitution actually says you you have a right to free speech. So if it actually says it, the court should protect that. It said that if the democratic branches are screwing around with democracy itself. So if you've got a gerrymandering case, if you've got a case where you know there's voter suppression going on, the court should step in because in that case, the democratic pr- branches are trying to rig the elections. Yeah. And so you can't rely on the next election to stop them from doing that. And, and democratic means like elected, not the, uh, the party, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The third case is when I mean, the phrase that that this one that that Caroline Products used was discrete and insular minorities. But basically, when you have an inherently when you have a vulnerable population that consistently winds up on like the wrong side of discriminatory laws, you know, whether whether it's racial minorities, whether it is women, whether it, it, it is gay people or trans people, you know, when you have a group that has historically like repeatedly the law has been used to target them, then the Supreme Court should step in in those cases as well. 
And beyond that, the court should let democracy work. And I think that's right. Yeah. The function of the court should be we, we, we don't want them to just decide based on their own values. You know, what, what, what five guys in robes says, the Constitution says that's now the law. You know, we, we, we should ask ourselves like how do we make sure that this court preserves democracy, it preserves the Constitution and it just doesn't go off on a jaunt and tear because it feels like it? Yeah, because especially in the book, you bring up the idea that since those justices are not directly elected, they are they draw their power from the Constitution itself and not from the people or or the electorate. And so so, yeah, maybe their actions and decisions should be kind of limited in scope because they're they're only signed off on by the Constitution itself. <laughs> the court now has less democratic legitimacy than it has ever had. So, so really. The first member of the court in American history who was nominated by a president who did not win the popular vote and confirmed by a block of senators who represent ha less than half of the nation because the Senate's terribly malapportioned. You know, California yeah. is 67 times as many people as Wyoming. They both get two senators. Um, so the, the, the first member of the court who was nominated by a minority president and confirmed by a minority block of senators is Neil Gorsuch. The second member of the court in American history, nominated by a minority president and, and confirmed by a minority block of senators, is Brett Kavanaugh. Alito yeah. and Thomas were both confirmed by minority block of senators. You know, the group of senators who voted no on them represent more people than the group of senators who voted yes on them. Oh, wow. um, so the only Republican on the Supreme Court who has any Democratic legitimacy is Chief Justice Roberts. What you have right now is you have four Democrats and they got there, you know, with some democratic legitimacy. You know, they they got there because a president actually won their election. Right. That president nominated <laughs> nominated them, and then a group of senators who actually represent a majority of the country said yes. Like Elena Kagan should be a member of the Supreme Court, but Thomas Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh do not have that legitimacy. And yet, you know, they are claiming powers, you know, that, that Caroline Products framework that I was describing where the court says, you know, like we should be really cautious and, and only step in in certain instances. They are fighting really hard to dismantle that framework and claim more power to themselves even as they have less and less legitimacy to do so. And uh, also bringing up Gorsuch, like I think anytime his name comes up, a lot of people say that seat was stolen. That was taken from uh, it, from the other. Yeah, party. that's Merrick Garland's seat. And is that a right. a is it stolen? And b has that kind of theft uh, happened before in history? I do not know of a precedent for the party that controls the Senate announcing we will not confirm anyone nominated by this president because he is a member of the other party. Um, you, you know, there are, yeah. there are definitely precedents for nominees getting voted down. There are cases where you had a weak president. You know, Herbert Hoover wanted to nominate a, a conservative to the Supreme Court. He gave a list of potential names of nominees to, to Senate leaders saying, OK, here's the people I'm considering. The last name on the list was a liberal judge named Benjamin Cardozo that Hoover did not want. And uh -huh. the, the, the Democrats in the Senate handed the list back to him and said, you gave this to us upside down. And so Hoover <laughs> nominated Cardozo. Oh, that's a so good So <laughs> like, yeah. 
you, you know, there, 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 there are stories like that, <laughs> but I, I, I know of no instance where the party that controls the Senate said, we don't care who you nominate, you know, you do not, you do not get to appoint someone um, to the Supreme Court. And I will add, you know, in keeping with what I was saying before about the Senate being malapportioned, at the time when Mitch McConnell announced that he will confirm no one that Barack Obama nominates, Barack Obama had actually won his election. He won the right. popular vote in 2008. He won it in 2012. And the block of Democrats, even though Democrats only had 45 seats in the Senate, those 45 Democrats represented about 40 million more people than the 55 Republicans. So, you know, our entire democracy is out of whack. And that's a big reason why we're now in this position with the Supreme Court. If I remember right, McConnell explicitly said publicly that not only would he not consider any Obama nominee for that seat, but it was prior to the 2016 election happening. And McConnell hedged that also maybe we wouldn't take one from the next president is, I think, what he said right. uh, publicly to everybody, uh, which is insane. That's cr that's crazy. Yeah, like it, in in the alternate universe where you know Hillary Clinton got a few more votes in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, yeah. but all the Senate races still turned out the same. There would at most be eight justices on the court right now because there's no way that the Republican Senate would have allowed her to fill that seat. As I understand it, eight is an even number. Uh, would would that be difficult right. for judicial decisions? Yeah, like you know the 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 reason we have a Supreme Court is that federal law needs to be universal throughout the country. So like the most common instance where the Supreme Court agrees to hear a case is if there's a case that's filed in, say, Michigan, which, which would appeal to the Sixth Circuit. And, and the United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit says, oh, this law means X. And yeah. then there's a similar case that's filed in Florida. That would be the 11th Circuit. And the 11th Circuit looks at it and says, this exact same law, we say it means something else. And so that creates a problem because you have one federal law, but it winds up doing something different in Michigan than it does in Florida. And so in those cases, that's why we have a Supreme Court, is that the Supreme Court's supposed to step in and say, no, no, this is what that law means. So it will be the same throughout the entire country. When you only have eight members of the court, you, you, you frequently the court isn't able to do that. And that creates all kinds of problems. You know, it, it, it creates yeah. a situation – where, you know, if the law says one thing in the Sixth Circuit and one thing in the Eleventh Circuit and you have someone who's suing their boss and it say it's a multi-state corporation and the employee would win in the Sixth Circuit and they would lose in the Eleventh Circuit, then you could wind up having competing rulings. The employee goes to the Sixth Circuit and files a lawsuit. The employer goes to the Eleventh Circuit, goes to the Eleventh Circuit, files what's called a declaratory judgment, which lets them just get a declaration saying that they did nothing wrong. And you wind up having two competing orders from two competing courts. That, that's untenable. I feel like they're, the entire purpose of the Supreme Court is some kind of final say, and it's crazy to think that we, we were a few vote changes away from maybe having an unworkable say from, <laughs> from an even-numbered court. That said, the situation we have now is worse because we've gone from having a situation where some issues won't be resolved to a situation where in those cases where they otherwise wouldn't be resolved, the Republican Party always wins. Yeah, <laughs> that, that is tricky. Something you, you wrote about uh, on Monday, the Monday of when we're taping this, which I hadn't really thought about because when we talk about those five 
justices who are, we can just call them Republican justices, I think. They, they may all be right. affiliated with the party even. But Roberts, Alito, Thomas, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh, you wrote a, a great story for Think Progress about there being a divide among those five justices. Right. And I, I hadn't thought of them that way because they seem like such a block. And it seems like maybe they are kind of a block, but speak on that way that there's kind of a split among them. Yeah, I mean, it's it's similar to how, like, when Republicans controlled the House, you had the Freedom Caucus that, like, would burn everything down if they didn't get their way. And then you had Paul Ryan, who wanted the exact same thing. He just, <laughs> like, didn't think that the that the Freedom Caucus's tactics were, were effective. Right. He just didn't want to end government completely. Yeah. And, and so you, you have more or less the same thing on the Supreme Court, where, where you have Thomas and Alito and Gorsuch, you know, they think they've got the power, they should use it. And, and so if there's a case that comes along that gives them the opportunity to implement whatever busted policy they want to implement, they'll they'll just do it. And Roberts, and at least so far, Kavanaugh, you know, seem to have a different strategic sense. You know, I, I wouldn't describe them as more moderate necessarily. But mm-hmm. I think what Roberts in particular understands is that the Supreme Court has limited political capital. The court relies on voluntary compliance. Like, you, you know, in, mo- in yeah. almost all cases, if a court rules against you, you may appeal it. But when, when, the judge, when the judgment is final and you have no more appeals left, most people just say, OK, like, I lost. I've, I've got to go obey the court now. And, you know, because of that, our, our, our judicial system works. If people just started to say, you know what, I'm not going to obey these guys, you know, go make me. There are some tools that can be used. You can send the U.S. Marshals out after them, but there's a limited supply of U.S. Marshals. And if everyone <laughs> who had a federal court decision against them were to say, you know, you're, you're just a bunch of political hacks. I'm not going to listen to you. You're just saying you're, I should do that because you're a Republican and I'm a Democrat. No. And so if people think that it's going to overstretch the court's ability to enforce its own judgments, you're not going to be able to send the U.S. Marshals after you know, more than a fraction of people. And I think what Roberts understands is that he has limited political capital. And if he does things like strike down Barack Obama's signature health care legislation on a completely made up theory that was invented solely for that litigation, that that's Mm going to diminish the prestige of the court and move us to a point where maybe people start saying, well, why why should we listen to these guys? One thing that's interesting is since Kavanaugh was confirmed, I think that Roberts and oddly enough, Kavanaugh himself seem hyper aware of the fact that it's probably not a good idea for the court to start taking rights away from women five minutes after a guy <laughs> who almost certainly tried to rape someone right. became a member of the court. And so they haven't taken any abortion cases. You know, There was a case involving Planned Parenthood last month that they rather surprisingly did not take, even though if you looked at the case, it met all the ordinary criteria for, for a case that, 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 that they would normally take. You know, they, they've been avoiding a lot of hot button cases that you ordinarily would expect them to take. Um, now, there's a bunch of hot button issues that are, the court is talking about at its, at its conference on Friday. So, you know, by the time people hear me saying this, I, I may have to eat my words. But at least as of this moment, they've been avoiding a lot of these cases. And I don't think the reason why is because Roberts woke up one morning and, say, and said, oh, I'm pro-choice now. <laughs> I, I, I think that yeah. 
what has happened is that Roberts realizes that if in this political moment the court were to overrule Roe v. Wade, if in this political moment the court were to say that if you are a religious conservative, you don't have to obey civil rights laws, you, you know, if, if this political moment he were to neuter the Voting Rights Act even further, that there would be a huge backlash. And, and so while Thomas Alito and Gorsuch are you know, throwing their tantrums saying, no, I want it all and I want it now, 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 now. Mm-hmm. I think what Roberts and Kavanaugh have been saying is, yeah, we got time. Right. They're not uh, their stance is not different, as you just sort of compared really well with the Freedom Caucus and Paul Ryan. Like they just are being more it's it's very odd to think of Brett Kavanaugh as in any way calm and tactical. I, I, I can't square that in my head, but it seems to be what's going on. Well, also in your article, I, I learned that. Apparently, the court, I did know that it can just not take a case or take a case. It's up to the Supreme Court. And I, I hadn't known it's, it takes four justices to bring a case up at all. And you pointed out in your article that that Planned Parenthood case that came up last month, the three nihilist justices, you call them, Gorsuch, Alitas, Ito, and Thomas, definitely said, let's take this Planned Parenthood case, which means right. that they didn't get a fourth yes from the very, very cautious and careful Brett Kavanaugh. <laughs> right. Yeah. Now, I mean, who knows if that's going to last with Kavanaugh? I, I mean, or, or for that matter, who knows if it's going to last with Roberts? Like, I, I mean, you know, these guys have dreamed about overruling Roe v. Wade for, you know, in some cases, decades. Like, I mean, I, I doubt very much that Brett Kavanaugh, now that he has the power to do something that he's wanted to do, you know, probably since law school, he's going to be like, well, you you, you, you know what? There's this woman that I that I abused when I was in uh, when I was in high school, and now everyone knows about her. So I'm just going to give up on all my dreams. Like, <laughs> like I, I I don't think that that's likely to happen. But 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 I do think that like they're going to try to put some time between a, a spittle faced Brett Kavanaugh screaming into a microphone about how much he likes beer. And, right. and the how court the actually overruling Roe v. Wade. I also wonder when you say like if they're worried about a backlash, are there any forms that backlash would take beyond like people pulling a Clive and Bundy or something and just refusing to listen right. to court decisions? Like, are they worried about Democrats winning additional uh, elections because of the Supreme Court? What's their fear in terms of a backlash? Yeah, I mean, there's a number of things that could happen. I mean, I mean, one of them is just that Democrats could become more mobilized. I, I, I mean, already, I think there, I, I think in the last election, women voters preferred Democrats over Republicans by something like twenty points. If if you add, yeah. you know, the Supreme Court overruling Roe v. Wade in in a partisan, you know, along party lines, that gap could become twenty five, thirty, forty points. You know, you could have more people turning out to the polls because they're angry about that about that decision. Right. You could have Democrats organizing more around the courts. I mean, Republicans have long, at least Republican leaders, have long viewed the courts as an issue that they really care about in and of itself. And Democrats historically have not thought that way. And if you know, Democrats start meeting force with equal force there, then the courts will gradually move, move forward to the further to the left. And then if things get really bad, then there are ways that the elected branches can defend themselves. There is court packing. There, there is nothing in the Constitution saying that there have to be nine members of the Supreme Court. Congress tomorrow, if it wanted to, could say, no, no, we're going to have 15 justices or – 
It could wait until there's a Democrat in the White House and say, we're going to have 15 justices. And then all of a sudden, instead of having a five to four Republican majority on the, on the court, you would have a 10 to five Democratic majority. A Democratic president could say, you know, remember those U.S. marshals that I just talked about that have to enforce the court's decision? A Democratic president could say, yeah, I, I think that decision's garbage. So, you know, if, if, if you want to enforce it, John Roberts, go do it yourself. I'm not, I'm not sending the marshals to help you. There is something called jurisdiction stripping where Congress could pass laws potentially stripping federal courts of jurisdiction to hear certain cases. Now, now you know, I wrote a big piece in Democracy Journal about court packing. I want to be clear about how dangerous these tactics are because if we get to the point where something like court packing is on the table – that would mean that you are destroying the legitimacy of the court. That would almost certainly trigger a backlash where red states would stop voluntarily complying with, yeah. with federal court decisions. And I don't think it would be effective. Like I don't think you could use court packing to restore Roe v. Wade, for example, because it, it, it's, it seems to me that sending U.S. marshals to keep abortion clinics open is a recipe for civil unrest. But oh, – yeah. If the court were to say try to rig our elections or allow red state legislatures to rig our elections and the choices between destroying the judiciary or having permanent Republican Party rule, at that point, I think difficult choices need to be made. And so I don't want to say that these are, these are tactics of first resort. I don't want to say that they should be used lightly. But it is in fact the case that if the court becomes a wholly owned subsidiary of the Republican Party and just starts you know, handing down decisions solely based on what the GOP's platform is that year, then Congress and the White House do have tactics they can use to defend themselves. You know, I oddly, that is a little bit hardening to me. It's also very scary. But I had yeah. often thought of the court as something that is like oddly beyond the people's will once the justices are put on it, like they just get to do whatever they want. And that's actually a lot of very dangerous ways to limit them, but also a lot of ways that a court can be limited. I also, I, I'm assuming many people don't know that uh, as far as that court packing strategy, that's something that Democrat Franklin Delano Roosevelt almost did. And that may be something worth getting into because I, I, as I understand it from your book, there were four very conservative justices on the court called the Four Horsemen. And FDR right. almost changed the size of the court to overcome them in the Great Depression. Right. So I guess I really have to start this story in the 1890s. So 1895 yeah. is a very crucial year in the Supreme Court's history. They struck down the income tax. They said income taxes are unconstitutional and, and it took a constitutional amendment to allow us to have income taxes again. One of the justices, Justice Stephen Field, wrote an opinion saying you can't have an income tax because it's too bad for rich people. It discriminates against rich people. Um, <laughs> those poor so, rich people. <laughs> yeah, no, those, 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 those poor, poor robber barons, whatever are they going to do? Um, so, you know, they struck, they struck down the income tax. They said in a case called E.C. Knight that Congress's power to the, – the legal term is regulate commerce, but essentially to pass economic regulation of any kind, to regulate the workplace, to regulate um, a lot of stuff dealing with how goods are produced was extraordinarily limited, almost non-existent in the, in the, in the context of the workplace. So 
employers could do whatever they wanted to their to their workers and there was nothing the federal government could do. And then they said in a third case uh, called In Debs that even in the absence of statutory authority to do so, courts have the inherent power to issue what are called labor injunctions, which is basically a court says, hey, union, I see you're doing that thing over there to try to get better wages for your worker. I order you to stop. And so after 1895, you then had a period of about 42 years where the court was deeply ideological. It's often called the Lochner error after a case called Lochner v. New York, which struck down a law limiting the number of hours that bakery workers can be forced to work to 60, 60. Yeah. Many of these workers were working 130-hour weeks, and the Supreme Court said that it is illegal to pass a law saying that that's too much. <laughs> um, you know, it, they struck down minimum wage laws. They struck down laws protecting the right to unionize. And then, you know, come the Roosevelt administration, they struck down much of the of the New Deal. And Roosevelt, in his second term, after he won in a landslide, you know, what, what's interesting about the 1936 election is that it really was an election about the proper way to read the United States Constitution. You know, the 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 opposition to Roosevelt was driven by an organization called the Liberty League and like the Liberty League is like if a bunch of like overzealous liberal screenwriters were to come up with like a sort of like heavy-handed parody of what <laughs> a meeting of the Koch brothers looks like, they would come up with the Liberty League. Like like liberty, yeah. literally how the Liberty League came into being is there was a guy – he was a former vice president at the DuPont Corporation. And he liked a vacation in South Carolina and he had all these African-American servants at his vacation home in South Carolina and he could pay them nothing because there just weren't very many jobs for him for, – for them. And then the New Deal came along and the government started offering them better paid jobs and this guy's like, wait a second, like – I've got to pay these people a decent wage now to compete with the government? That's not fair. <laughs> and so he started this organization called the Liberty League. He went to the DuPont brothers who at the time – they were like the Koch brothers of their time, got them to throw money into this into this organization. And the Liberty League – I mean it was a hugely influential, hugely powerful or, or organization with like some of the biggest – you know, Al Smith who had been the Democratic nominee in 1928 and was salty that like Roosevelt had won and, and he didn't was a, was a member of the Liberty League. You know, John W. Davis who was a former Solicitor General who went on to argue Brown v. Board of Education on the wrong side was a member of the Liberty League. These were big, yeah. powerful people. Their entire argument to the nation was you've got to vote Roosevelt out because what he is doing is unconstitutional. The New Deal is unconstitutional. We've got to protect free enterprise. You know, the, the same stuff you hear coming from the Koch brothers now. You know, the same stuff you hear coming from Thomas and Gorsuch now. You're saying, like, no, like the Constitution does not let the government interfere with the social order. And if, you, if you're rich, you should stay rich. And, and then Roosevelt won in a landslide. Right. And he said, look, we we just had an entire election that was about what kind of constitution we should have and I kicked the other guy's ass. And so it's time to set aside these ridiculous doctrines that the Supreme Court has made up 
and it's time to you know to allow the democratic branches to govern and he was ready to pack the court now it turned out to be unnecessary because justice owen roberts who was kind of the swing vote on the court at that point also looked at that election and said gosh that was a whole election about the constitution and that that didn't turn out so well for uh, for the for the Liberty League side, and so he <laughs> right. flipped his vote on a lot on a lot of cases, and so court packing wound up not being necessary. Um, but yeah, so this is a tactic that at least um, was floated in the Roosevelt administration, although um, was was not ultimately deployed. There's a few things there. What it seems like it was not ultimately deployed because one guy changed his mind, and especially from from reading your book, it seems like a lot of Supreme Court history and because of their power, just American history has been decided by one justice's change of heart or health or death. Uh, like It's a lot riding on just one person's personal situation, isn't it? The word that my historian friends use is contingency. Like There are so many crazy events that happen because of some crazy random happenstance where you can imagine – you know, if one tiny thing had played out differently, everything would have been different. I mean, and it, one example I talk about in the book. So one of the worst Supreme Court decisions in American history is a case called Hammer v. Dagenhart. Oh, yeah. um, Hammer v. Dagenhart struck down the federal ban on child labor. You know, I go into a tremendous amount of detail about working conditions in that era, but like were children as young as six – were working in coal mines and in cotton mills and like actually one of the worst jobs that they had to do was they would employ these children to peel shrimp and shrimp is actually very caustic and so like you, there was a danger of getting chemical burns that way and this was something you know six year old children were, were, were doing this for you know 10 hours a day. Congress decided it wanted to put a stop to that. The Supreme Court struck it down in a five to four decision. And, and one of the five was a man named James Clark McReynolds, who was arguably the worst person who has ever sat on the Supreme Court, like just a horrible bigot. When a black attorney argued in front of the court, he would turn his back to the attorneys who would swivel his chair to like <laughs> be like, I don't approve of you being here. I'm going to turn my back on you. And I think when women – when a woman argued a case, he got up and left. So that, that's really? who this guy is. Yeah. And the way that he got his seat is he was Woodrow Wilson's attorney general. And, you know, he, he got that job because he had been an effective antitrust lawyer. And I think no one realized what a jerk the guy was. And then he got to be attorney general and he was just obnoxious and Wilson couldn't stand him. And, but for whatever reason, Wilson did feel like he could fire the guy. So he said, I'm just going to make him someone else's problem. I'm going, to make, I'm going to make the other justices have to deal with them. So Wilson literally nominated this guy to be <laughs> on the Supreme Court just because he wanted to get rid of him. He didn't want him as his attorney general anymore. And then he got <laughs> confirmed and he winds up being the fifth vote to strike down child labor laws. If, you know, if Wilson hadn't made this guy attorney general, if he just fired him. Or if he'd said, OK, I'm going to suck it up and deal with this jerk and pick someone who actually, would actually be a good justice, then that decision would have gone down the other way and it wouldn't have led to 20 more years where children were first to work in coal mines and cotton mills. This era we're talking about, you mentioned many cases that I almost want to linger on because they're just terrible, like that Henry Debs case in 1895 essentially made striking illegal for laborers. That Lochner case where they said that you couldn't uh, have a law limiting the hours someone works because that violates their freedom. Hammer v. Dagenhart made child labor okay. 
This was the same era as Plessy v. Ferguson, which I believe upheld segregation. And then before that, Che Chan Ping v. United States, which upheld the ban on Chinese immigration of any kind into the right. U.S. in 1888. Yeah, the law was called the Chinese Exclusion Act. Yeah, they, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. I mean, they, they did, at least they didn't hide the ball. Like it was right there what they were doing. Right. <laughs> that whole range of late 1800s, early 1900s cases. Earlier, you'd said that the, the current court has less legitimacy than it's ever had. Is that true versus this just horrible run of time when they were making all these terrible decisions? And, and as you said, yeah. Justice McReynolds would turn his back on female lawyers. I believe he shunned his Jewish colleagues on the court because he was an anti-Semite. It, it seems like it was worse. Yeah, almost yeah you know, like every year the justices take like that class photo where they're all like sitting in the like there's you know oh, five yeah. in the chairs and four. Yeah, you, like you know yearbook. that picture. I mean, yeah, they've been, they've been doing that little yearbook photo for <laughs> you know probably as long as they've been cameras. They do it once a year, except for one year. And the reason they didn't do it in that year is because when the justices are arranged in that photo, they're arranged by seniority. And uh -huh. that year, because of how the seniority chart worked, McReynolds would have to be next to Justice Brandeis, and Justice Brandeis is Jewish, and McReynolds refused to stand next to a Jew. So they just didn't <laughs> take the picture that year. Yeah, that I, I, yeah, I'm curious if the public looked at that court and, and maybe hopefully not even just FDR Democrats at the time looked at it. And like, I can see how court packing was on the table. That's a, that's a, a right. stunning group and a stunning limit on every American's life. <laughs> so, I mean, I'll say a few things. I mean, I think that the court we have now, like in terms of the substantive outcomes that they're likely to produce, probably will not be as bad as what you got in, say, the 1920s. I mean, I'm very worried about what this court, what the Roberts Court is going to do to voting rights. And I think that voting rights is literally the most important issue there is because the only way to fix a bad government is to vote it out. And if right. the Roberts Court takes that away, then nothing else matters. But that said, actually, John Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, has said very clearly he disagrees with the Lochner decision. Like, I, I don't think that ideologically the court we have now is as bad as the court we had when McReynolds was writing majority opinions. Um, that said, what is new right now is that we have the most partisan Supreme Court that we have ever had. So like I mean you know you had terrible ideologues in like in say the 1920s but you look at these really awful decisions you know Lochner you know Henry Debs Hammer v Dagenhart the child labor cases and there were democratic and republican appointees in the majority so like you know the, the court was tanning down really awful ideological decisions but it wasn't that they were saying like we are here to push the agenda of a particular political faction in this country since then, our parties have just sorted more. Like, I mean, for most of American history, this is, you know, something that political scientists will tell you is very unusual. Our political parties weren't really coherent. Like, I mean, there were liberal Republicans, there were conservative Democrats. For most of the, the 20th century, the most liberal and the most conservative member of Congress would both be Democrats because the most liberal member of Congress would probably be a Democrat from New England who was, you know, who's a big lefty. And the most uh. conservative would be a segregation from the South right. who was a Democrat because there was only one party at that point in the South. It was the Democratic Party. Um, so we didn't have very coherent parties and that led to 
you know, Republican president could sometimes appoint liberal justices, you know, or or Warren was appointed by President Eisenhower. A Democratic president could sometimes appoint very conservative justices. McReynolds, again, was appointed by Woodrow Wilson, who was a Democrat. So there wasn't a partisan coherence to what they were doing. Now is the first time in American history where you have a block of five members of the court who are all Republicans and who consistently vote together in politically charged cases and a block of four Democratic members of the court who all consistently vote together as well. That has never happened before and that I think is very frightening because McReynolds was terrible. But the thing about the McReynolds era in the Supreme Court is you had terrible decisions coming down, but it was five independent minds who were all, all independently deciding that they wanted a terrible result. Right. When you start organizing <laughs> by party, you start organizing by party. You, know, you, you, you have blocks that start voting together. You have people who start all forming the same opinion at the same time because they all went to the same Federalist Society panel and, and they found that panel convincing. And so it's much easier to get really terrible results. In the 1920s, you could find instances where even though there was a conservative majority on, this, on the Supreme Court, a case would come along and one of the conservative justices would, would just independently decide, no, th no that's, that's a bridge too far. And I think you're going to see less and less of that now. And the reason why is because there is an intellectual infrastructure and a partisan infrastructure in place to make sure that Republicans all think one way about the law and Democrats all think one way about the law. It almost sounds like the results of any Supreme Court we have are are partly determined by what just the public expects they would do with any case, because they are obviously act, only acting on cases that work their way up to them. They're not just waking up one day and declaring stuff. But it, it seems to cut both ways, like in that that Warren Court you mentioned, which we, we should also probably break down more later, but that was such a positive time in the 60s and 70s there that in the book you mentioned that People were so excited about what that court might do for the, the downtrodden person and the regular person that they were bringing them cases like, hey, is poverty itself kind of unconstitutional? But once yeah, you the, know – That was the, the Rodriguez case, which unfortunately yeah. did, not go, did not go well for the plaintiffs. Here's what I will say is that lawyers are smart and the sort of lawyers who bring cases to the Supreme Court are smart. We will not know for several years how bad the Supreme Court is going to get with Brett Kavanaugh on it. And the yeah. reason we're not going to know is because the cases that are now arriving in front of the Supreme Court for the most part are cases that were filed three years ago. Like three years ago, everyone thought Hillary Clinton was going to be president. Three years ago, people thought that Justice Garland was going to be the swing vote. Right. And so – Really aggressive conservative lawsuits did not get brought in that period because they, they thought they would lose them. And then after, you know, after Trump won and people realized that there was going to be someone like Gorsuch in that seat, you know, they started bringing the suits and you're seeing like, you know, the first wave of those sorts of lawsuits now starting to reach the Supreme Court. You know, none of the cases that 
were brought after people knew that Justice Kennedy w- w- was leaving the court. None of those cases are, you know, ha- have made their way up to the Supreme Court yet. And so we won't know for a while, like, you know, what's going to happen is you're going to have all these Federalist Society lawyers and they're going to start thinking creatively and they're going to come up with wackadoodle theories and then they're just going to see what sticks. And one or more of the Republicans of the Supreme Court are going to look at it and say, no, no, that, that's too much. You know, that, you right. know, that's what happened with, with the attack on Obamacare. You know, John Roberts said, no, 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 that, that's too far. The lawyers adapt their strategy to who's on the court. So when it was the Warren court, you know, liberals were thinking very aggressively about what sort of lawsuits to bring. And now conservatives are going to think very, very aggressively. And I want to point out one other thing just to like – I mean I hope sure. that my fellow Supreme Court reporters are hip to this dynamic because if they aren't, they won't inform their readers very well. And that is we will eventually reach an equilibrium point. Like what's eventually – like you know, right now it looks like Roberts is the median the median justice. And and you know, Roberts is very conservative, but like there are things that he won't do that like Thomas and Gorsuch and like the Federalist Society lawyers who are bringing these lawsuits want him to do. So eventually everyone's going to have a pretty good sense of how far Roberts is going to go and for like the next few years there's going to be a feeling out period and the court's going to like hand down a lot of really conservative decisions and as these Federalist Society lawyers start winning more suits, they're going to start getting more aggressive and eventually we will hit the point where Robert says, oh, nope, too far. You can't do that. And when we hit that point, you're going to get a lot of five to four decisions where it's going to look like, oh, Roberts is voting with the liberals a whole lot now. I guess he's a swing justice and he's a real moderate. And that's not what it means. If I bring a lawsuit arguing that black people are unconstitutional and in a five to four decision by Chief Justice Roberts, the Supreme Court says, no, no, we don't think that black people are unconstitutional. (laughs) That doesn't mean that John Roberts is a moderate. It means he's not a crazy person. Right. And that case has just kind of sounded out exactly how far he'll go. It's not. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Well, and because for people who don't know, and there was a case National Federation of Independent Business versus Sibelius in 2012, where the court did uphold the Affordable Care Act. And as you say in the book, Roberts seemed like he was going to be the fifth vote to kill it and then just kind of changed his mind and didn't kill it as the fifth vote. And so... I guess that has all lawyers with an agenda in the country trying to figure out, okay, well, let's see what his psychology is. We'll determine all laws that way. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, basically, you know, we are now in a world where, you you know, the Constitution is whatever John Roberts says it is. And John Roberts is a really conservative guy. I mean, he's not as absolutist as, as Neil Gorsuch, but like... I am confident Roberts wants to get rid of Roe v. Wade. I am confident that Roberts is going to ultimately say that religious conservatives don't have to follow civil rights laws, at least in in as much as those civil rights laws protect gay people and trans people. I am, you know, 
confident that Roberts is going to say that gerrymandering is fine. Roberts has already said that Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, which was the provision saying that states that have a long history of racial voter discrimination have to get someone in Washington to look at the law and make sure it's not a discriminatory voting law before it can go into effect. He already struck that down. He – back in the 1980s, he worked on a bunch of memos in the Reagan Justice Department where he said that another provision of the Voting Rights Act, which says that if a law has the effect of disenfranchising um, people of color, that the law is illegal. He he argued that that was unconstitutional. So this Uh is a guy who – based on everything in his record, is prepared to eliminate our entire voting rights regime. You know, he also yeah. voted recently in a case called Abbott v. Perez, which was a case involving intentional r- race discrimination. He's, you know, he voted. He joined an opinion saying that it's virtually impossible to prove intentional discrimination. You know, if you bring a case alleging intentional discrimination, you're going to lose. Wow! And so this is a really, really conservative guy. And yeah, there are some things that he's going to say is a bridge too far. Like he did say striking down the entire Affordable Care Act, that's a bridge too far. You know, he he probably would, you know, he would not strike down the minimum wage, for example. He's been pretty clear that he disagrees with the Lochter line of cases. But if you just look at his voting rights jurisprudence, I I mean, this guy believes some really wacky things. And like I said, Voting rights, like if you don't have that, nothing else matters. Yeah, right. Because then, then the government just gets stuck in what a minority of the people with the power want. Then you just have, you know, an eternal secession of Donald Trump's. And in terms of those sort of more aggressive changes to the system uh, to limit a Supreme Court that that is going overboard like that, there's a. I want to cite a memo here from 1983. It says, "quote." Setting a term of, say, 15 years would ensure that federal judges would not lose all touch with reality through decades of ivory tower existence, end quote. That was a 1983 memo by a young Reagan administration person named John Roberts. Uh, yes. And is that how far we can we can go, some kind of a fundamental change to the court, like term limits? Because uh, as you mentioned, not only is the Supreme yeah. Court, but also the Senate I feel like there's a lot of opinion out there saying the structure of those two uh, pretty sizable parts of the government, the, the structure might be something that has to be fixed or else it's broken. There's a lot of people who support term limits. You know, the, the leading proposal I've seen is for the Supreme Court to have 18-year terms and you would stagger them so every two years – Someone rotates off the court. You know the, the theory being yeah. that that way you know that if you elect a new president, that president will get to replace exactly two people on the Supreme Court during their during during each of their terms, and so you don't have the situation you have right now where justices time their retirement so that a president of their party's in office. You, you, you don't have the situation where they're like trying to find people who are as young as possible so they can squeeze as many years. As <laughs> so like I think yeah. there's reason for term limits. I, I mean, I remember talking to a lawyer once who clerked on the Supreme Court in the late 1980s. And what he told me was it was an incredibly depressing period. And the reason why, like you had all of these people on the court and some of them were 
utter giants. I mean, you had Bill Brennan, who was the liberal lion of the 20th century. You had Thurgood Marshall, the single greatest litigator in American history. You had, you, you know, Blackman and Powell. You, 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 had the, you had these justices who were at that point were extraordinarily elderly. Uh-huh. And what he told me is that they weren't the men they used to be. They they they, they very much had suffered f- from mental decline, and it was just very depressing watching these people who once had been lions, you know, no longer having the intellectual capacity to really do their job, and so a lot of the job wound up getting pushed onto the clerks. And oh, geez. you don't want that. And you know, one way you can avoid that is term limits. But if the problem you're trying to solve is to prevent us from having a deeply ideological to Supreme Court, you know, to like get rid of people like Clarence Thomas, I don't know that that solves the problem. And, and the reason why is because the Federalist Society in particular, you know, the, the conservative like you know Republican legal group, has been radicalizing. Very, very fast. I, I mean, when I was a law student, I didn't graduate from law school too long that long ago. I graduated in two thousand six. When I was in law school, they were like they were pushing judicial restraint. You know, they were saying many of the same things that I said at the beginning of this interview. That look, you know, we, we don't want judges doing too much. You know, we want we want democratically elected officials yeah. deciding what our law was. And you know, in the Obama years, they rallied behind this nutty theory to try to strike down Obamacare that almost won. And now, like, I go to Federalist Society events and I hear people talking about bringing back Lochner. I, I mean, they, they think that the 1920s when people like Justice McReynolds were running the country was a golden age and they want it back. And each year that I attend their events, they get more radical. You could implement term limits and Chief Justice Roberts has been there you know, long enough that he would probably get term limited out. But if you replace someone like Roberts with someone like Gorsuch, I don't want to live in that world. I mean that, that, that's, a, that's a worse world. There are good arguments for term limits, but it is not the solution we are looking for if what we want to fix is the problem of a deeply partisan or a deeply ideological Supreme Court. Because a lot of the players in this, I also feel like – well, not only are the American people not directly voting on who gets on the court, but they also tend not to know who's involved in this. Like in your book, you right. cite a poll from 2010 where only 28 percent of Americans knew the chief justice's name. Um, and right. this this Federalist Society organization, I don't know a lot about and I, I think most people probably haven't heard of. Is there like an equal and opposite a group to the Federalist Society fighting for the other thing? Is it just a, a battle between those two kinds of things? I mean, yes and no. I mean, th- there's an organization called the American Constitution Society that is supposed to be the, the liberal counterpart to the Federalist Society. Now, I mean, ACS, I think, has maybe a sixth of the money that the Federalist Society has because oh, no. like <laughs> there's just a lot of Republican money. Like there's there's a whole lot of millionaires you can go to to write big checks or something like the Federalist Society. There's a whole lot of lawyers and law firms who make a lot of money representing corporate clients that will benefit a great deal from what the Federalist Society is going to do. And like, you know, some of those lawyers are personally sympathetic to what ACS is doing, but that's not how their bread is buttered. Structurally, like the two political parties in this country are very, very different. You know, the Republican Party is an ideological party where 
it is driven by the notion that there are these certain first principles that we believe in and our goal is to make sure that everything in American law and policy aligns with our values. And the Democratic Party – and like this isn't a diss on the Democratic Party. It's just a different way of structuring a political coalition – is a coalition party. You know, in, in the Democrats, you have racial and ethnic minorities who are there because, frankly, the Republican Party has become a white nationalist party and they, they don't want those guys in charge. Right. You, know, you have you know, sexual minorities and gender minorities who like align with the Democratic Party for similar reasons. You have people who are low income who you know, benefit more from democratic economic policies. You have people who are very wealthy and very well educated who may actually be worse off economically under more liberal economic policies but who identify culturally with the values of the democratic party. And you have mixtures of those. I mean, you know, there's intersectionality right. there. You know, you may have a black attorney who objects to the racial politics of the of the Republican Party and identifies culturally with with, with liberalism and maybe they have a brother who is who is poor and so they're sympathetic to their brother's needs as well. I mean, like it's not like everyone's in that coalition for only one reason. It's just a different way of structuring a party. And so you actually have much more disagreement amongst Democrats about you know, what the proper way to, to run a country is and what the law should look like. And that makes it harder to organize be, because you, know, you can get a bunch of like Federalist Society lawyers together and they all believe the same things and like 80 percent of them are white men. And they all have very similar jobs and like they represent these corporate clients. So like the way that they pay their bills aligns with their political values. And it's just really easy for them to work together to come up with a coherent theory of what the laws should look like. You get the liberal lawyers together in the room and the environmental lawyers who are you know, trying to come up with, le with legal theories to stop an oil pipeline from being built don't necessarily align with the labor lawyers whose clients are unions who represent workers who want to build that pipeline. You, you, you know, there's like, wow. you know, again, like I'm not attacking the Democrats here. It's just, it's just a, a different way of structuring a party. You know, the Democratic Party is a big tent. There are more Democrats in this country than there are Republicans. But because the Democratic Party has, you know, is made up of these different groups that – you know, often have overlapping but sometimes conflicting interests, it's harder to organize. And I'd imagine it's had that problem at least since the, the Civil Rights Acts of the 60s. And I, with, with fixing the Supreme Court or, or at least shifting it in a, in a direction that works for everybody more, I almost wonder if that, that Warren Court we talked about a bit, which for people who don't know, it's named after its Chief Justice Earl Warren, but it was a time from the late 50s to the early 70s when we got a lot of pretty equitable decisions, which, as you point out in the book, was kind of the first time. I, I, right. I almost wonder if we can look at how that court came together and then see some kind of strategy to shift the current court without dismantling how it works. So the answer is it came together by accident. Eisenhower once said that uh, the two biggest mistakes he ever made are sitting on the Supreme Court. They were they they were Chief Justice Warren and Justice and Justice William Brennan. 
you know, you know Eisenhower oh, wanted to put conservatives on the on the court, and like, there's a lot of speculation as to why he put Warren, but like, Warren had been the governor of California, and uh, and he was a Republican, and there are theories that like. Basically, Eisenhower traded him a seat on the Supreme Court in return for Warren's political support so that Eisenhower could get the nomination. Brennan, huh. from what I have read about Bill Brennan, you, you know, Brennan is, was, was an Irish Catholic from New Jersey. And for whatever reason, Eisenhower, you know, gives you a sort of a window into how Eisenhower thought. But like for whatever reason, Eisenhower apparently thought like, oh, this guy's an Irish Catholic. He must be a conservative. (laughs) And as it turns out, (laughs) Justice Brennan was, I mean, really the great liberal lion. I mean, because he wasn't just a very liberal justice and and a very smart justice, but he was one of the greatest political minds that has ever sat in any of the three branches of government. And he was persuasive. I mean he had a very close relationship with Justice Lewis Powell who had been a conservative southern lawyer who represented clients like Philip Morris for – I think I think Powell was actually on Philip Morris's board for a while. I mean, oh, that, that's, that's who Lewis company. Powell was. But Brennan like cultivated a friendship with Powell and was very effective in convincing Powell to, to move to the left. You know, Brennan had a similar relationship with Justice O'Connor. You, you, you know, I mean he was he was such an effective politician that often his persuasiveness brought along two additional votes. You know, Eisenhower thought this guy was going to be a conservative. Um, <laughs> again, like you can imagine a world like if Eisenhower felt like he hadn't needed Warren's endorsement to get the nomination or like, you know, if, if he picked someone other than, than Brennan, Brennan yeah. that entire period of, of American history might have been very different. You know, you probably wouldn't have seen the criminal justice revolution you had in that era where like – I mean b- before the Warren court, you had instances where police would literally torture people to get confessions. You'd smack them around for a bit until they signed a confession to get the abuse to stop. And then and then the police would go into court and say, well, if you got to convict him. He confessed. <laughs> That's insane. That's where the Miranda case came from. It's it, it's because yes. police were hounding people. I mean, even when they weren't torturing them, they, they would just get someone in a room and they would hound the person. The person wouldn't know what the rights were. And this was happening over and over again. And Innocent people were being sent to jail and finally the Warren court said the constitution has to mean something like, you you know, the, the, yeah. you know, the fact that you have these rights have to mean something. And so police, here is a script that you have to read. You have to tell people in these exact words, these are their rights so that you can't hound them until, the, until they give up the rights. I, I mean, you know, the, the constitution says that you have a right to an attorney. Do you have any idea what a lawyer costs? <laughs> I, I mean, right. You cannot afford a lawyer unless yeah. you are very, very wealthy. And so, what the Warren Court said is, it said, "Look, this right has to be something, and that means we have to have public defenders. Because if we don't have public defenders, the only people who will be represented by counsel will be the very, very rich." I feel like people may not realize how many rights we have came out of that in like decade and a half when this this Warren Court, as we call it, was. In place, a decision in 1961 said that you can't use unlawfully seized stuff as evidence. A 1963 decision created public defenders. A 1966 decision created Miranda rights. It's it's a lot that 
I feel like maybe maybe there's almost something heartening in how quickly a better constituted court can fix things or flip things. I don't know. I guess the there's the obvious downside of how quickly they can flip things worse, but it changes fast. That that's amazing to me. You know, you could imagine a future like, you know, two years from now, if 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 no one else leaves the Supreme Court, you know, we might have, you know, President Gillibrand, President Harris, President Warren. I mean, you know, who knows who will be, but like, you know, oh, we yeah. have a Democratic president. And then like, you know, five minutes after, you know, President Warren takes the oath of office, Justice Alito could choke on a chicken bone. And if that happens, all of a sudden it's a five to four Democratic court and everything looks completely different. Now, I mean, I, I will say that it strikes me as completely ridiculous that we live in a country where all of these massively important questions could hinge on the fact that Sam Alito swallows a chicken bone. Yeah, right. <laughs> but like – but that is the reality. I mean that's how, that's how our system is set up. People reporting on the court have every right to report on – the health of these justices because their their death is how the the seat turns over is that also kind of an upsetting element of that work oh it's terribly upsetting and yeah. there are <laughs> ways to pick judges i i, I mean you know, there's there's some countries in France they have a, they have a professional judiciary ju- judiciary and and so generally like the way that you become a judge is like I, I think you actually go to judge school and and then like and huh. then you are promoted within the judiciary so like the the senior judges pick who the junior judges are and then you know and people who do well get promoted so like that's one way you can do it there's something called the Missouri system because it came about in the state of Missouri. And the way that that works is you have a commission. Some of the members of the commission are picked by the governor. Some of the members of the commission are picked by the Bar Association. Often the chief justice will chair it. The members of the commission are picked by enough diverse groups that it's unlikely that one political party is going to capture all the seats. And then the way that the process works is whenever a vacancy opens up on the state Supreme Court, the commission sends three names and they're supposed to pick them solely on the basis of merit. Doesn't you know, you're not doesn't matter what their ideology are, are, is. These are just people that we think would be excellent judges. And of those three names, the governor picks one. And it's a good system. You know, it's a better system than we have at the federal level. You, you, you know, Alaska uses the Missouri system. And what that means is there's a woman right now who sits on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. Um, Morgan Christiane, I think, is, is, is her name. She was an Obama appointee to the Ninth Circuit. And before she was an Obama appointee to the Ninth Circuit, she was a justice on the Alaska Supreme Court. And Sarah Palin appointed her. Yeah, you know, I mean, through the commission, the commission was one of the three names that the mm. commission sent to to Governor Palin, and Governor Palin said, "I want her." But you know, the point is that it took the politics out of the process enough that both Sarah Palin and Barack Obama could look at the same woman and say, "This woman will be an excellent judge." That's a better system. I, I mean, <laughs> there are sometimes when it's captured. You know, Arizona has a Missouri-style commission, and it's pretty captured by the Republican Party right now and they've been putting up pretty ideological um, justices on the Arizona Supreme Court. So it, so it ain't perfect, but yeah. it's better. And if it means that justices are picked for reasons other than partisanship some of the time, that would be better than the world we live in now where they're picked on the basis of partisanship all of the time. 
And it, and it seems like even that shift, this is probably way too optimistic to think it happened, but it seems like that shift could happen without changing official laws or systems. Like I was amazed to learn in your book that not only did Richard Nixon get to pick four Supreme Court justices, which is a thing we don't think about enough. He got to pick them. They just stayed right. there. But then that court certainly handed down some uh, terrible decisions, but also handed down decisions like Roe v. Wade, abortion is legal now. Right. And it seems like it was just because there was enough depoliticization that even somebody like Richard Nixon didn't necessarily pick yeah. hardcore lunatics every time. First of all, I want to say that it would take a constitutional amendment to implement a Missouri or at least it would take a constitutional amendment to implement it in a way that was permanent. President Carter actually implemented something. I think it was called the United States Circuit Court Selection Committee. And like he created a commission that was supposed to pick U.S. Court of Appeals judges based solely on merit. And he, he followed the recommendations of his commission. And it was great. It worked really well. And then Ronald Reagan came along and said, I don't want to do that. I want to pick staunch Republicans. And so that was the end of that. Um, <laughs> so like if you are going to have it be – Something that is staying power. You, you have to do it by a constitutional amendment. But like to the point about Nixon, you know, the lesson I would ta I take from that is that politics change. If you look back at the 1970s, like abortion was not yet a partisan issue amongst highly educated people and, and highly educated people are, again, the sort of people who get to sit on the Supreme Court. There was a fairly widespread consensus that abortion should be legal. You, you know, there was, you know, I, I don't really? recall if Nixon ever expre expressed a view on, on abortion, but it was very pro-family planning. You know, there's broad bipartisan consensus that Planned Parenthood is good. And uh -huh. it wasn't really until the rise of organizations like the Moral Majority in the 1980s that you began to see not just political organizing around conservative Christian identity, but that those groups decide that abortion was an issue that they really cared about. My point is just that that politics shift. And here's another very contingent part of history. Sure. Roosevelt you know, you remember what I said before about how the court kept striking down the New Deal. So the only thing that Roosevelt cared about was that he wanted his justices who would get out of his way and let the New Deal happen. There was no coherence amongst the people he put on the Supreme Court on racial justice. I mean, Hugo Black, Justice Hugo Black actually wound up being a huge liberal who was very good on civil rights. But before he became a justice and changed his mind about like, I guess, whether or not African-Americans are people, he was an Alabama senator and he belonged to the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah. You know, this was Roosevelt's first nominee to the Supreme Court and thank God that Hugo Black had a come to Jesus moment sometime after he put on a black robe. Another one of Roosevelt's appointees was this guy Jimmy Burns and Burns thankfully only served on the Supreme Court for a little more than a year. Um, he wound up becoming Roosevelt's right-hand man. He, you, people called him the assistant president. Um, Burns was in charge of uh, running the war mobilization effort and he became so powerful at one point when Roosevelt would go overseas to meet with Churchill and Stalin. There was a safe in Burns's office which yeah. were blank executive orders and Roosevelt had signed these blank executive orders and it told Burns like, if there's an emergency, just write whatever it needs to go here. 
Oh, um, he's the president. Burns out on the Supreme yeah. Court. <laughs> yeah, Burns out on the Supreme Court for a little more than a year. Staunch segregationist. He wound up being elected governor of South Carolina after his service in the Roosevelt administration, after he served as Harry Truman's secretary of state. And he was the governor that litigated, you know, one of the companion cases to Brown v. Board of Education. Like he was the governor who hired the, what was then the one of the best lawyers in the country, John Davis, who I mentioned before, to defend segregation before the Supreme Court. So like if Hugo Black had, you know, not changed his mind about racism or if Jimmy Burns had decided that he would rather have stayed on the Supreme Court, Brown v. Board of Education would have gone the other way. Right. It was a unanimous opinion, but it wasn't actually a unanimous opinion. Like they they heard it the first time around and the vote was four to four with Felix Frankfurter sort of not sure what to do. And in the intervening year, like they decided to argue it again. And over the summer, while it was waiting to be argued again, Chief Justice Vincent died, was replaced by Earl Warren. And Earl Warren was the fifth certain vote to say that that yes, we got to end segregation. And once it was five to four, you know, w- once they had a majority to end segregation, then Earl Warren, who was the former governor of California and was a very savvy politician, said, "Look, if we do this, and there's a dissent, it's going to be a nightmare. The South is going to latch on to that, and there's no way that we're going to survive that. This has to be unanimous." And he eventually huh. convinced every member of the court. I, I think the, the the last holdout, I think, was Stanley Reed, who was from Kentucky. I think was also a segregationist. And at one point, after Warren had lined up the other seven votes, he went to Reed and said, "Stan, you're, you're all alone in this." My point is like. I have two points. I mean, one is it just shows how contingent this all is. Like, you know, again, if like if Hugo Black had stayed a jerk, if he'd stayed a bigot, then (laughs) all of American history since the 1950s may may have been different. If you know, and the other point is that presidents don't often anticipate what the next issue is going to be. I mean, people were surprised that John Roberts voted to defend the Affordable Care Act. I'm not. And the reason I wasn't surprised that he voted to uphold the Affordable Care Act is twofold. One is that I've read a lot of his writings and everything I've read about John Roberts tells me that what he wants to do is the stuff that the conservative faction in the Reagan Justice, Justice Department wanted to do in the early 80s. And I've read the documents from the conservative faction in the, 19, in the early 1980s and they just didn't want – like they didn't care about the doctrinal issue that came up in the Affordable Care Act case. Oh. You know, the other reason I wasn't surprised is because the reason why George W. Bush picked John Roberts because what Bush cared about was Gitmo. He wanted a justice who would be certain to uphold Gitmo. And so he went looking for people who he thought would exercise what was then called judicial restraint and would say that the president could do whatever he wants with Gitmo. And that that was who John Roberts was. And sure enough, I mean, John Roberts upheld the Muslim ban on these national security issues. He's awful because that's what Bush picked him to do. He picked him to be awful in national security (laughs) cases. Didn't pick him to like say that poor people can't have health care. Right. Yeah. One uh, one terrible thing at a time. Yeah. But e- like even that Brown v. Board story, public pressure and attention on the court mattered. And uh, just before you go, is there anything you notice coming up? I'm sure there's many things, but anything you notice coming up that people should be particularly aware of or, or watchful of with the court? Yeah. I mean, depending what the court does on Friday, by the time people hear this, they may take the abortion case that can be used to overrule Roe v. Wade. That is 
that's something they're oh, discussing wow. at their Friday conference. Do you know what that uh, case would be called if, if it goes up? Box is the name of the case. I can't remember who the other party is, but someone v. Box. And it v involves Box. a cool. really trolly Indiana law that, among other things, prohibits race-selective abortion. And as far as I know, race-selective abortion isn't actually a thing. Um, oh, you know, but like yeah. the, the law has two purposes. You know, One is so that if the Supreme Court takes the case, Fox News could spend the next six months accusing Planned Parenthood of being racist. And oh. then, you know, and the, and the other reason why why the law exists is because once you get that camel nose under the tent where they take any abortion case, that can be used as the vehicle to overrule Roe v. Wade. And, and so so bo- box is the name of the case that people need to watch out for. There are several cases. There are at least three cases dealing with whether or not it's legal to fire someone for being LGBT. Um, oh. There is a big guns case. That involves like a really dumb Second Amendment issue. You know, it involves whether or not people have a right to practice shooting at the firing range of their choice. And somehow now that's now a constitutional question. But like if they take that case, they could massively expand the Second Amendment and it could lead to a lot of, you know, currently uncontroversial gun laws being struck down. There is a case about DACA, the Obama administration policy protecting a lot, lots of undocumented immigrants who came here as children. There is a case involving the trans ban that Trump tried to impose on the military. So you, you, Trump doesn't want people to be able to serve if they are transgender. Right now, this has been a very common, boring term. And like I could tell you all sorts of like vaguely pleasant things about how John Roberts has been avoiding bad cases. And for a while, we can like feel safe. By the time people actually hear my voice, things might have gotten much, much scarier. Yeah, well, and we will we will link to as much as we can about if anything's changed when it comes out. But uh, either way, thank you so much for for taking us inside of all this. Folks, that's the episode for this week. My thanks, as I said, to Ian Milheiser for giving us so much time and such a wealth of information about how the Supreme Court and justice in America have worked over time. I think the more we know about how it's worked, the easier it is to improve it and, uh, you know, exert that kind of public pressure that has impacted the court throughout its history. And in our footnotes, you will find Ian's book, Injustices, the Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted. It's a, it's a fascinating read. I'm glad he got to so many stories that come up in it uh, because there's just, there's just so many details of American history bound up in the Supreme Court. I think we learn the presidents primarily because they're easier to process, uh, but the legislature and that e- even more secretive and strange court system has impacted everybody's lives a whole lot. As I said, we'll also have extensive footnotes on all the different court cases we talked about today that are just such fascinating landmarks in shifting the direction of the country. And as I said, just those few times when we talked about, oh, maybe tomorrow or later today there will be a little more court news, you will find a text update in the footnotes on uh, what exactly has happened there uh, because we, we want you to be informed and informed accurately when you listen to this podcast. 
More links for Ian Milheiser's work. We'll link to his Think Progress writing, which we uh, touched on today, especially with the surprising split in those five arch-conservative justices. Also, Ian's Twitter account. It's very funny. He's he's really on top of being fun about what's going on in the courts. Uh, his avatar is a picture of Earl Warren. So if you wonder what that guy looks like, you'll find out. And there's a lot there. And I think it's uh, as much as you want to dive into it. I hope we have uh, met your need and clarified things and uh, brought you the best uh, experience we can. Speaking of experiences, why don't you have the live experience of this show? Uh, tickets are not on sale yet for our LA live show in February. That's Saturday, February 23rd at 9 p.m. at the UCB Sunset Theater in Los Angeles. We'll post out links to tickets when they are, but you can mark your calendar in the meantime. And then you can get tickets to our live tour. We're taking the show more places than ever before. Chicago, April 11th, Lincoln Hall, St. Paul, Minnesota, April 12th, Amsterdam Bar and Hall. Uh, I know I keep talking about those shows, but I'm so excited about them. I can't help it, folks. I cannot be restrained. Yes, I can be restrained. I'm an adult and put together. And let me say in a put together way, I'm just very, very excited for those shows. And I hope you'll join us out in the upper Midwest, my home region. I'm going to be back. It's going to be great. And beyond that, our theme music for this episode is the song Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. Also, a big thanks to the many engineers who helped us today. Jordan Duffy engineered at Earwolf LA. And then we had the indispensable assistance of Mark Georges, who's at the uh, Scripps Bureau in Washington, D.C. So I'm glad we could, like, uh, you know, cross the country to talk about the, uh, the crazy robed folks who've changed it. This episode was then edited by Chris Souza, who put it all together and, uh, you know, joined the coast. What magic. I love it. And if you loved this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right. Social media. A space that I think we are all recovering from watching as uh, as Brett Kavanaugh made his way through some Senate hearings. And uh, I hope you all gave yourself some self-care if you needed it, because that was uh, that was quite a time. Also, a lot of memes, because there's always memes, but mostly very, very difficult. So hang in there. My own Twitter account is at Alex Schmitty. My Instagram is at Alex Schmitzagram. I'm on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. And I'm here to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.